We were invited to the College of Arms, which is a 16th century building in Queen Victoria Street in London, where some extraordinary things happen. There is a small group of very unusual people who do ceremonial, heraldic, vexillological, and badge-oriented work. Now, it sounds very strange, and it is quite cryptic, and it's quite different to anything that most people think about when they think of the UK or business or technology or the things that we spoke to so many of our other guests about. We were there to see Garter King of Arms, Thomas Woodstock, the 37th holder of this office since it was created by King Henry V in 1417. As Garter King of Arms, he's the principal herald in England and the senior officer of the College of Arms. The reason I thought this would be an interesting person to talk to is because the things he does for a living are so different to any of the things that the rest of us do. Everything from how to proclaim a sovereign to how to bury one to how to dress in a tabard and design a coat of arms for an American. He could do all of these things and is the only person in the world who has the power to do all of them. We sat in his study with wallpaper with actual garters on it and tons of old books, rich mahogany furniture, and one or two curious things that were probably a hundred years older than any of us. Garter King of Arms, we're in the College of Arms on Queen Victoria Street. Um, this is the, the home of heraldry. Yes. In the world, it's, it's the place for everybody who has a coat of arms or a, uh, a badge if you take it seriously, it needs to have it registered. It's a, an inventory of people, in effect. Well, we only have the official records for countries of which the Queen is sovereign, and Scotland has always had its own heraldic authority, the Court of the Lord Lyon in Edinburgh, so we don't cover Scotland. And the Canadians set up their own heraldic authority in 1988, so similarly we do not deal with Canada. And, of course, we don't deal with other countries of which the Queen is not sovereign, so we wouldn't have French heraldic records here in any official way. We may have collections which cover foreign countries, but we don't automatically cover the world for heraldry. But we have been on this site since 1555 and existed as a corporate body since 1484, so we are of great age. Was, was it King Richard III who brought the college into existence? It was King Richard III who gave us our first charter of incorporation in 1484 and gave us a building called Cold Harbour about 300 yards away from here, which we lost the following year when Henry VII, after the Battle of Bosworth, gave it to his mother <laughs> as a townhouse for London. And were, were many of the records of the college destroyed in the fire? Very fortunately, between about 1600 and 1750, the college had boats and boatmen. And so at the time of the Great Fire in 1666, it took a day for the fire to reach here. And we took our records upstream to Westminster and the entire library was saved. And we brought it back when we rebuilt the college in the 1670s. So Gata, when people talk about having arms, that's an individual thing. It's not a family thing. People tend to think that uh, there, uh, there are family arms, but they're passed down to individuals. And then there are labels which differentiate, you know, the younger branches of the family from the elder ones. Yes, cadency marks for junior members of the family. The system's indifferent in Scotland, where no two men have the same coat of arms. And so 
particular variation of the arms is assigned to a younger son and then that will pass to his own eldest son on his death and another younger son will have another coloured border or some variation of that sort. Whereas the English cadency system has always been, you might say, rather simpler in that a crescent denotes a second son, but it doesn't distinguish between an uncle and his nephew, who are both second sons. And basically, arms belong to all the descendants in legitimate male lines of somebody who is granted arms. So if the grant arms were granted in 1600, there could be a great many male line legitimate descendants. Daughters may use the arms, but they don't pass them on to their children, except as a quartering if they have no brothers, in which case they're known as heraldic heiresses. Do, do you have as many people coming to apply for new coats of arms to be, to be issued, to be matriculated, as perhaps we had 80 years ago? I would say we had possibly slightly more. We have about 140 people at new grants of arms a year, but that could be a town in Australia or a university in New right. Zealand. It might be a high sheriff in this country or a new peer. Could be a variety of different people. Any eminent subjects of the Crown, both men and women, can have a new grant of arms. And is it is it true that everyone is entitled to be armigerous? Well, by descent, everybody could be entitled to be armigerous if they were legitimate. Yeah. And uh, but no, we will only grant to eminent subjects of the Crown. But the tests for eminence were laid down a long time ago in the 1400s and they include as alternatives a university degree or a professional qualification or holding at some time of a civil or military commission, a civil commission being, for instance, a justice of the peace. So a great many people are eligible, but not necessarily everybody. But you can always say to someone who comes in who's not eligible, well, if you go away and become a justice of the peace, we'd be delighted to grant (laughs) arms to you. I think it's fair to say that... um eminence it can be expressed in other ways so if you're the leader of your in your field if you're a successful entrepreneur you may have no qualifications at all but if you've built a business which employs hundreds or thousands of people that would make you eminent in a different way and you would still be regarded as being eligible for a grant of arms or if you've got a wonderful track record of uh, public and charitable service so if you've if you've you know, been very very active in a charitable or voluntary sphere that might also be thought of as a as a qualification for a grant of arms what what sort of day-to-day business does the college do in respect of those things which don't involve grants of arms? Well, part of the work is establishing people's right to historic arms, so that would be proving their pedigrees, so that's genealogical work, and then registering them here in many cases. Then there is a lot of work done identifying coats of arms on objects. It might be work for the sale rooms, such as Sotheby's and Christie's, identifying a portrait from a coat of arms painted on it. Quite a lot of artwork is done. People may want just a new painting of their coat of arms or a painting of their arms combined with those of their wife. So there's quite a bit of heraldic artwork as well and all sorts of historical detective work. Some people want to know who their 32 great-great-great-grandparents were and have a pedigree written out in that form. So it's very varied, the genealogical interests and inquiries that people have. Yeah, we come, it's, it's, as Garza rightly says, it's a hugely varied role and we do lots of different types of research work, mainly genealogical and heraldic. Um, we, we, we're doing more on things like um, flags and national symbols and emblems, and that's becoming a, a significant part of, of what we're about. 
um, um, because that's a, a, a topic that a lot of people are interested in and want to know about. And so we advise on, on things like flag flying and um, uh, protocols for flag flying and the use of uh, emblems of those kinds. Uh, and that's advice to Magata advises government departments, ministers and um, local authorities and other organisations that want to know how to fly their flags without upsetting people. Right. So that's quite a big thing. We do quite a lot of genealogical research work, which is nothing to do with coats of arms, just simply because families want to know about their, their roots. And we can undertake uh, genealogical research work for them, tracing the histories of their families back in time. And that's families from every conceivable background and every, and every place. So. so it's not just the people in books and Brits? No, not at all. In fact, those sorts of families tend to be rather well-known already. So, yeah. so they're, 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 you're less likely to do genealogical work into those sorts of families mm. because they tend to be so well-known. It's more often uh, families that nobody knows about ordinary families that um, the people just simply want to know who their ancestors are and, and uh, actually the other thing we're doing is, is, is with, with peerage families is, is we, we help people to establish claims to peerages and baronetcies so we advise them on how to prove that they're entitled to, to inherit a peerage or a baronetcy and Garter has a judicial role in, in, in advising the Crown on whether those claims have been fully made out so right. he will inspect claims of for peerages and baronetcy successions. Well then, this, this is why I brought Sia. He's, got, he's trying to figure out whether or not he deserves a title. You know, in <laughs> the back of my head, gentlemen, since I have been here, I think, can't we make something happen? <laughs> um, Gata, how, how much has the internet changed how all of this information, first of all, is stored, how people research it, how much of it is verifiable? Because obviously, the work that the college has, 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 has always done has been meticulous in ascertaining precisely whether two people were married, whether two people produced legitimate offspring. These things were important not only for families with, uh, with, with, with you know, peerages and so on, but also for people who wanted to know for sure that they could tell someone we descend from the conqueror or much, much more recent people. Well, a tremendously good source of information, the internet, but we still have to go back to the original sources so you can get marvellous clues as to how to pursue something and this is perhaps something that uh, York Herald might, as he's doing more active genealogy than I am uh -huh. on a daily basis, comment on as to what his views on the internet are. Yes, I mean I think, I think um, the technology available to you as a genealogist has always been constantly changing and it was revolutionised 50 years ago by the invention of microfilms and you could, you could suddenly you could look at records which were housed on the other side of the world in the form of a microfilm copy. The internet is just a sort of higher tech you know, version of that. And it makes available records stored all over the world in different libraries and record offices. And, and, it makes, and, and they are indexed and digitized in a way that they're suddenly searchable in an incredibly quick and efficient way. Um, so we make huge use of those sorts of resources all the time, of course. Um, but the, we, always have to be, we always have to be looking for the original records. So where those records have been digitized and put online, that's great because they are authentic copies of, of manuscript records that were created at the time of the event. The internet is also, it can be unhelpful mm. because, of course, it's absolutely open to anybody to po publish <coughs> any genealogical fact or fancy that they may have come across. And so a lot of caution has to be exercised because it's basically... Um, because it's so open to anybody to say whatever they like about ancestry, their own or other people's, you have to exercise a lot of caution 
with whatever you find. You have to have a degree of, of uh, scepticism until you're, until you're dealing with original contemporary records, documents which were created roughly at the time of the event that they record. You always have to be quite careful. And we've got a tradition at the college of being extremely careful mm. about our genealogical research work. Every fact and relationship has to be proven by documentary evidences for it to be entered into our records. So it's really an exceptionally sort of careful and cautious approach to genealogical record keeping, which in 500 years time means you can look at those pedigrees and know that they've gone through this very careful scrutiny and, um, and they should be you know, as accurate as, as, as was possible. I don't know how many organizations in the world today can say that they're thinking about 500 years in the future. That's, that's quite something. For an, for an institution, for a college that's already five or 600 years old, I mean, that's quite a story. It's, it, must be, it must be very interesting to work here. It must be interesting to meet the people who come in here and the people who you have to meet as a result of your work. I mean, I think it's just, just briefly, um, one of the, one of the, the big things that occupies my time as, a, as an officer here is answering inquiries from people. And we get an absolutely huge number of inquiries on every possible heraldic and genealogical and other sort of topics sent in from all over the world. And, and uh, one officer is always designated the officer who's responsible for answering inquiries for that week. And they will all get a reply as helpful as possible, explaining, you know, either answering the question or explaining how best to answer it or sometimes saying, well, this will take some time, this will take a research project and quoting a fee to undertake that research work. So that's a big part of my work, answering those sorts of inquiries which come in from all over the world. And, and they're very varied and interesting inquiries as well. Uh, Gata, your, your role is, is also in the royal household to be not just the, 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 the administrative chief of this college under the, the Earl Marshal, but there are also ceremonial duties and very peculiar things that you have to do, like running the Order of the Garter, for example. Yes, well, as Garter King of Arms, I'm responsible for taking the rehearsal for the Garter service, and another officer of arms, Clarence o, King of Arms, is the secretary of the Order of the Garter, so he de deals with all the paperwork side of it, drafts the ceremonial, works out the seating plan, and then on the Friday before the garter service, I take the rehearsal down at Windsor. So between the two of us, we're responsible for dealing with that side of it. I'm also responsible for having the new banners made for the new knights, having their crests carved, and also having the stall plates manufactured, which are, of course, put up in St. George's Chapel at Windsor. And I do similar work as genealogist of the Order of the Bath. For the Order of the Bath, in that although I don't organise that service, I'm responsible for the stall plates and the banners and the carved wooden crests that are produced. So there's a lot of work with orders of chivalry of that sort, and um, other officers of arms deal with some of the other orders of chivalry. So Somerset Herald deals with the Royal Victorian Order, and Norrow and Ulster King of Arms deals with the Order of St Michael and St George. And, and go to the other roles within the royal household. Uh, what does what does the queen need you for besides the the orders of chivalry and 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 heraldry in general? Well, advising on royal titles would be one matter. So that if titles are to be distributed to, or the queen wishes to give a title to member a member of the royal family. So, for example, with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex most yes, recently, so you would have looked at 
history and I would look at history and decide what was appropriate and what was not appropriate for different reasons and whether some title could be revived and therefore would be inappropriate. I mean, for instance, the Dukedom of Cumberland was attached to the Kingdom of Hanover and Cumberland is not very popular in Scotland with the stories of Butcher Cumberland right. and so on. So there right. are some you want to steer away from for that reason. The Duke of Albany was a title given to Queen Victoria's fourth son, which was removed, uh, who then subsequently they became uh, Dukes of Saxe-Coburg. And so that title was removed in 1919 for fighting against the British Crown in the First World War. But under the terms of the Titles Deprivation Act 1917, it could be claimed back. So you clearly don't want to suggest a title which under some circumstances might be claimed by someone else. Mm. So there's always a certain amount of historical research to do. And traditionally, since really the time of the Act of Union of 1800, the union of the three kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland, as it then was, it's been customary to have one title from England, one from Scotland, and one from Ireland. That, of course, is now restricted to Northern Ireland. Right. I mean, sometimes it's possible to have the dukedom from Scotland, an earldom from England, and a barony from Ireland. And I mean, there have been dukedoms from Ireland in the past, such as the Duke of Connaught, but now Ireland's rather restricted. Mm. So the tendency is to have a dukedom from England, an earldom from Scotland, and a barony from Ireland. But that is something that one can be flexible about to some extent and Wales is left out of that on the basis that it's a principality and legally was considered as the same as England uh, since Henry VIII's reign where it was administratively all placed in, under one heading. Has the Queen ever not liked your suggestion for a, for a particular title? <laughs> well it's a customary put forward one or two suggestions ah, right. on any case so that there is some choice. Ah, very so, good. You also have a very important role in, in royal ceremonial uh, burials, for example. Gata reads out the, the style and titles. Styles and titles, yes, that is one of uh, Gata's roles and, of course, proclaims the styles and titles of a new sovereign uh, the day after the former sovereign's death. Which From is, Friary Court in that's St. James's correct, Palace. St. James's Palace at 11 in the morning, as long as the sovereign has died before 6 p.m., previous day and other officers of arms Clarence O King of Arms reads it out from the Royal Exchange uh, Ulster King of Arms Norway and Ulster King of Arms will go over to Belfast Wales Herald Extraordinary uh, will make a proclamation in Cardiff obviously Lord Lyon is responsible for proclamations made there and in the past there have been other proclamations in places such as Temple Bar which have been made by other heralds so, yes, that is a role that all the heralds participate in and, of course, take part in a royal funeral. And, and you also swear in peers at the House of Lords. You were doing that this week, weren't you? I, I, yes. Um, one of my uh, roles since the 1620s has been for Garter to introduce new peers into the House of Lords, which uh, literally means that Garter walks in ahead of the new peer who's accompanied by two other peers of the same rank which means they have to be barons as all life peers are barons but right. it could be a hereditary baron and so it's at the start of business which on a Monday and Tuesday is at 2.30 well they start with prayers for five minutes and then there's the actual ceremony at 2.35 mm -hmm. 
but I'm not allowed to introduce more than two per day. And the reason for that is so that at no time, and introductions may only take place on a Monday, Tuesday and Thursday. So we're speaking today on Wednesday because I was in the House of Lords Monday and Tuesday and I'm going to be there again tomorrow because some new peers have been created and so they all want to get into the House of Lords. But because it's restricted to six a week, if a government suddenly wanted to flood the House of Lords with 100 new peers, it would take them, well, it would take them uh, 10 weeks to get in 60. So they couldn't suddenly say we're creating all these peers to get through our legislation, which is very unpopular. It would take some time. So, yes, that is something I've been doing this week. And are you often required to dress up in your tabards and and, uh, parade around in those? Yes, well, I'm expected to wear a tabard to do that, and so I do. I mean, a tabard is, of course, literally a coat of arms. It's a coat of the royal arms, which we as um, royal officials wear to represent that, so that this week I will have been worn the tabard three times. Um, Do you keep it here? (laughs) No, I keep the uniform I wear beneath the tabard here, which is called a coatee, a coatee being an object you wear under a coat, and the tabard is the coat. So, so that is here. Um, I tidied it out of this room an hour or two ago because it was here airing from yesterday. <laughs> um, so I'm sorry it's not visible, but uh, as we're only having an audio interview and not a visible one. I didn't expect you to dress up for me. No. Uh, that would be a complete waste of your time, I should think. Yeah. And, and, and York, do you find that this is the kind of business that someone has to be interested in from an early age? Is it something that you took an interest in when you were much younger and decided this is what you wanted to do? Because it is a, it is a very particular business. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's fair to say it's a pretty obscure line of work. <laughs> and not very many people um, grow up thinking, you know, I really want to be a, a herald. But, um, and I think we probably all came into it from, from, through different routes. But in my case, it's really evidence of a misspent youth, I think. Um, because I grew up with an interest in heraldry and genealogy, and um, um, and so I spent my teenage years looking at coats of arms in churches and um, reading and learning about coats of arms and about genealogical research work and things like that. So it was an interest of mine from an early age. Um, first sparked, I suspect, by uh, the, the, there's a James Bond novel um, on Her Majesty's Secret Service where where James Bond. Um, develops uh, it goes comes to the College of Arms to develop his um, cover story that he's going to be he's going to be a herald investigating the genealogy of, of Blofeld the sort of you know, criminal mastermind and um, and I, and my experience was that I took away from the James Bond novel not the sort of glamour fast cars and uh, faster women but the um, but the sort of the, the visit to the College of Arms and the and the sort of uh, the sort of romance and um, mystique and obscurity of, of the College of Arms and that sort of crept into my brain at an early age I think and probably had a sort of fatal effect on me so I've been, uh, yeah, so it was very much a childhood interest um, and uh, and I was lucky enough to be appointed a research assistant here after I left university and so I've really sort of been here one way or another ever since then. And Garza, for you was it something that you were interested in from a very, very early age? Was it something that uh, took your, 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 your fancy at quite a, a, an important time? Yes, I was always very interested in, I think, historical detective work, really. And my 
paternal grandfather wrote one or two local history books, so I acquired an interest from that. He was writing things about Lancashire, and he was a solicitor by occupation, so he was interested in the legal side and also in family trees, and it was, I suppose, really his hobby. And so I acquired the interest from him, I think, and I always enjoyed the historical detective work side of it and trying to solve who missing relations might be and, and tying them into objects and that sort of thing. So I had a, an early interest and my father always felt that he didn't have time to be interested in such things. So he, he used to deposit me with my grandfather, feeling that somebody could absorb all this information my grandfather had. Unfortunately, rather than being horrified and put off it for life, I acquired an interest in it so that I was very lucky in that respect and I mean things are so much a matter of luck and timing and uh, my father said if I qualified as barrister I could do what I wanted as far as he was concerned so I scraped through the bar exams but I didn't do any pupillage and I was lucky enough to have an opportunity to come and work here which I did for the then Garter King of Arms in 1975 so I've been here for the last 43 years. And I would imagine that it, it's quite um, rewarding work when you discover something interesting or you are able to matriculate a coat of arms for, for example, the, the new Duchess of Sussex, which came out the other day. Yes, well, certainly a genealogical research work when you actually have a breakthrough and discover something is extremely rewarding because you can spend years trying to solve a particular problem. And it's very satisfying. Design mm. work is, of course, very different, mm. but... It is, again, satisfactory when you can produce a, a good design. Uh, my predecessor as Garter was particularly noted for very good, simple designs. Um, sometimes I just slightly give up. I feel you're better having a happy client and a dreadful design in about one in a hundred <laughs> cases than having an upset client and a wonderful design. I mean, sometimes... My predecessor was very keen on strange insects like stag beetles, and people didn't always appreciate or want, instead of a lion holding a sword, they didn't necessarily want a stag beetle, however good it looked. So, um, but it's, it's always, it's fun, and the important thing is that the people who are having the arms should enjoy it as well. I think it's quite, it's quite satisfying, I think, with uh, corporate bodies as well. You know, if you, do a, if you design a coat of arms for a university, say, um, it's quite nice the knowledge that that university is going to use that coat of arms on every degree on, on every degree certificate they're given out to thousands of people every single year possibly for who knows how many decades or, or whatever you know or centuries even and there are coats of arms being used today by families and by institutions that were granted 500 years ago and that's quite you know that's that is Lovely. quite a, an amazing feeling to, to be part of that design process uh you must have been very interested in the in the discovery of King Richard III's remains and what that meant from a genealogical point of view because this DNA world that we're in now opens up new avenues for genealogy that weren't available to us before. Um, does this uh, make you nervous or does, is it something that you think of as a resource, Garter? Well, I think DNA potentially makes me nervous because, of course, we've already had one case last year where a baronetcy has ceased going down the line it was thought on the basis the baronet died and it was said that his father born in 1903 had not been the son of his grandfather and DNA evidence was produced to prove that and the case it was a Scottish baronetcy I might say fortunately so it didn't mm. concern us immediately and it went to 
the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which was in fact the Supreme Court sitting as that. So the top judges in the land, a number of them, heard the case and they decided that the person who didn't have the DNA evidence to support the descent, the man, the legitimate eldest son of the baronet, who was a very distinguished man, um, should not inherit the title. And so that if you started applying that across many titles, because if historically, unless there's real fraud, hmm. your mother's 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 your most certain ancestry, and it's a matter of assumption in each case that the husband is really the father of the child, so you would not want to start upsetting a lot of traditional descents where property and titles have passed. So I'm apprehensive. Mm. I think it's fascinating in other ways and very interesting, but I think one has to be very careful when approaching hereditary titles, and I think it might be rather better if there was a cut-off period of 50, 100 years, say, or whatever the time was, that beyond that you don't go, because the family have been accepted. I think it's very different if someone uses DNA evidence to prove they're not the father of somebody right. who says they're their child, because so I think that's important to be able to refute that. But I think to go back one or two hundred years, you're getting into much cloudier water and could... Uh, Make have real problems, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think I agree. I think I agree with Garter on that, but, on that point. I think the thing I would say about DNA evidence is that it's the single most misunderstood and misused form of genealogical evidence there is. It's very widely cited, and many many people have DNA tests, mm. uh, which are commercially available and, and widely promoted in the genealogical world. Very very few people understand properly what the results mean or how to apply them to their family history. And many people are misled mm. by uh, a, a misunderstanding of what DNA evidence can tell you and of how DNA evidence essentially works, what the mechanics of it are. So it's, it's, in certain specific situations, it can be immensely useful. With the Richard III case, it was hugely useful because they were able to tra trace certain forms of DNA, the mitochondrial DNA, which descends in the female line, very reliably and unchangingly. The, the mutation rate is very, very slow. You can trace female line descent through mitochondrial DNA very reliably over hundreds and hundreds of years. Other forms of DNA analysis are nothing like as useful or reliable. They tend to deliver only statistical results. In other words, only statements of probability. So you may have two people with similar DNA and the, the, the testing will only tell you the degree of similarity they are and then the, the probability of them being related to a degree or, you know, in other words, how, how far back you would likely have to go to find their common ancestor, if indeed they have one. So there's, and many people come to us with DNA evidence to support a, a pedigree. Very, quite often, I would say almost usually, it's being wrongly applied and it doesn't really support the argument that they're putting forward to support that pedigree. So it's potentially hugely useful mm. and in some cases vital, but very often it's probably not as helpful as it might be. What's the what's the most frustrating or annoying part of your job? Is it is it inquiries from Americans? <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> All inquiries could be entertaining or irritating. It's different. <clears throat> <laughs> it's uh, difficult to know quite which the... Certainly when you had 
inquirers coming in, you always knew there was a sort of small element of those that were slightly mentally deranged. They would usually claim to be the um, Queen and have as evidence. I remember one coming in with a large key saying key to Windsor Castle and it had been stamped by the police. This only means they'd been arrested with this key. It didn't mean anything else. And I'm afraid very naughtily in the old days when this when people did come in I usually used to turn the conversation round to saying well you're also claiming to be Queen of Scotland as well if this is a woman yeah. and that this I think is possibly a case for the Scottish heralds and here is the address <laughs> Lord Lyon, King of Arms so that was one way of getting uh, rid of such problems in any work you have some work that just takes a long time but it's it's satisfying I think it can be rather disheartening when you have a suitcase full of printouts from this, that and the other, evidence provided by somebody who hasn't really grasped what is evidence and what is not evidence and you waste a lot of time sorting through material and um, and you can have disasters. I remember many years ago somebody came and said, this man is my great-grandfather, will you please trace back from him? So I did and that was fine and we went a certain way. Some years later, the person came back and said, I was wrong as to who my great-grandfather was. And so we then had the grandparent with the evidence that he'd... So you don't think always to question people, are you sure it's your great-grandfather? Because it really was very close. Well, I say very close. I don't think it's unreasonable. Somebody came and said, this man's my great-grandfather. Can you trace back from him? So you want to avoid that sort of thing. So I taught myself a lesson with that. Uh, that it's always worth just sort of getting the little bit of the pedigree between the great-grandfather yeah. and the person and just check it up. Yeah. Start with the most recent ones. I always yes. start from the client. Yes, client. it is yeah. much better. But I think it's fair to say that we, we, have many, we have many clients who are Americans, we have a lot of friends in the States, and, and we have fantastic relations with mm. them. Many, many Americans are huge enthusiasts. No, I, was being very, I was being very mean. Yeah, 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 yeah you were. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's a subject which is of huge interest yeah, and absolutely. passion over there. And they're very keen on heraldry and coats of arms, and we make grants of coats of arms to Americans in certain circumstances quite a lot because it, there's a great enthusiasm and passion for the subject there, which is, which is brilliant. And the college itself, you must have some very interesting records and, and, and old parchments and bits of vellum and books that contain very, very old records indeed, right? We do have wonderful collections because they were saved in the Great Fire so that we still have the old libraries. It was catalogued in the 1590s and the first herald to leave his collections, uh, Thomas Bennell, died in 1534. In his will, he left it to his successors in the office of Clarence King of Arms. But in practice, in time, that just came to mean the college. And we still have some of his books here, which is wonderful to have one of the first book uh, libraries you've been left from a man dying in 1534, which is a long time ago. No, it's incredible. I, I'm, I'm amazed at the work that carries on here and that you're, that you're able to do. It's still a very relevant organisation. I think that there are more and more young people who find the, the business of heraldry interesting, even though the, the origins of it um, and its original purpose is probably not as useful today, identifying people on the battlefield. It's a, it, the, the thing is that the coats of arms have been around for 800 years now mm. and the reason for that is that it's constantly changed its meaning and function it's been a hugely flexible system and it's meant different things at different times so yes when it when when coats of arms first started to be used they were primarily used in a military context mm. so they meant you know battlefield use and in tournaments 
But of course, as society changed and evolved, they became status symbols, you know, marks of identity as, and, and of participation in that chivalric culture. Later periods used them in different ways again. So they've, they've, they've found different meanings, different functions over the centuries. But there is a legal aspect to them too. It's a signature. Yes, it, so the coats of arms can be used as a, 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 to, as a mark of identity and authentication. They're mm -hmm. very often used on seals. Um, but it's, it is the flexibility of the system. And you see that as well in the design. I think mean, that's very interesting. The, the sorts of coats of arms that have been designed over that sort of 800 year period have completely changed. So the sorts of things you could do, you, the sorts of things you might do in 1300 would be very different from the sorts of things they would have done in, say, 1520 which would have been very different, again, from late 18th century heraldry, all the sorts of coats of arms we do today. They've always been affected by the aesthetic environment that the heralds were working in. So um, a, an 18th century herald would have designed a coat of arms influenced by the Romantic movement and influenced mm. by sort of the Gothic and all of those sorts of aesthetic movements. People designing coats of arms today, we're influenced by, I don't know, uh, pop art or um, sure. sort of modernist art and architecture and all of those sorts of things. So it's very, we design coats of arms now, which would be probably seem quite weird and alien in some cases to, to medieval heralds. But, they're, but they use the same broad vocabulary, the same systems and the same repertoires of devices. Well, you, you, all have, new ways. you all have your own language when it comes to describing a coat of arms. Yes. And it, it allows you to very accurately, in written form or in, in voice, be able to explain what's going on on a coat of arms. And a lot of people don't know. That's a bit of French in there. There's some Latin. There's a bit of English, it's, too. It's essentially, it's a sort of Norman French vocabulary mixed in with English grammar. And it's really it, it's evolved over the centuries as well. But it's, a lot of the vocabulary comes from the, it, the, the fact that Essentially, French was the, was the language of the elite during the early Middle mm. and Middle Ages. Until about 1400, that was the aristocratic language of choice. So the French was the court language. So, um, so a lot of the vocabulary is, is essentially French in origin. It can seem quite alien and off-putting to people when they first encounter the, the terminology we call blasm, mm -hmm. which enables you to very succinctly and precisely and accurately describe the coat of arms in words. But actually, it does a job, it's got a function, um, and it's very easy to learn. So it's not, a, it's not an obscure or difficult thing to grasp. Well, thank you very much for taking the trouble and the time to see us all the way from South Africa. We have our own Bureau of Heraldry there. Do you have much to do with them? Do you communicate with them often? We communicate with them a certain amount, yes. Um, so as with many communications with other bodies, you'll find you communicate them with them three or four times in a month and then you don't hear from them for six months but <laughs> so there are matters that come up and certainly there is an active interest in heraldry which I'm aware of. Well thank you I appreciate your time and uh, this very very interesting conversation I'm sure lots of people who didn't know an enormous amount about the college or heraldry or genealogy or any of these things will be motivated to take an interest in, and will come and busy you all with more achievements of arms in the very short term. But thank you very much, Gata. Thank you, York. Thank you. Thank you. Terrific.